right, just a couple of announcements that we need some nursery and prep school workers. So if uh, you're interested, you can uh, contact Mark Friedrich. Also, there's a, an election in, uh, on May the 1st. has to do with several things, but one thing it has to do with is uh, in Spring Branch, I, I understand this, there's only two people, two races on the ballot, right? Right, is that right, only two, Pam? Yeah, two. One of them is between a liberal woman and a guy named Chris Ernest. And Chris grew up at Second Baptist and is a conservative Christian. That's all I know. You can make up your own mind. But I think one time I looked at an election when it was only school board and there were 500 people who voted. So every vote really counts. And if you live in um, in Spring Branch, so that's that's an important thing to pay attention to. And then the other thing on uh, Saturday, May eighth, at two p.m., we'll have a celebration of life for Betty Smith. Betty was one of the founding members of West Houston Bible Church and went to be with the Lord last week. And so that will be at two o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, May eighth, followed by a reception at 3 p.m., and they say in lieu of flowers, family requests that donations be made to West Houston Bible Church or KHCB Christian Radio. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. I would assume that most of you have probably not sinned all day today, so we'll just have a very short time for silent prayer or you have kept very short accounts. So we always need to make sure that we are practicing regular confession of sin, make sure we're walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking in the light, walking in the truth. And so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can uh, take care of whatever you need to take care of. So we're prepared to study the Word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, just such a tremendous opportunity we have to study your word. We enjoy so much the freedom we have in this nation, and it is threatened in from many different directions today. And we do pray that you would give leaders the wisdom in order to resist, that you may expose the evil that is intended by so many and the attacks that they are bringing against the Constitution and against Christians 
We are at the heart of all opposition. We are part of that angelic revolt, and this is the devil's world. So, Father, we know that we are to be strengthened in you or to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of your might. And we pray that you would uh, continue to remind us of that. And as we study in Judges, that we may have discernment as to what is going on in the world around us as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 2. Well, before we go there, just keep your finger there. Let's go to Romans first. We're going to start off looking at uh, Romans 6. Last time, we talked about the major question that was asked by Joshua of the Israelites. Me and he said... Me and my family will serve the, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Uh, Who will you serve? And that's the big question that we need to ask ourselves all the time, every day in many different ways. Who am I serving today? Am I here to serve the Lord or not? And we have to understand just what that means because, as I pointed out last time, very few people in Scripture are identified as true servants of the Lord. So tonight we're going to look at this, what happens in the verses from 2-6 on and how the nation of Israel is spiraling out of control and we'll see some obvious uh, parallels with other nations in history as well as our own. We're just in this first section where we are looking at the uh, the, the basic summary before we get into the details of the book, chapters 1, 1, 2, 3, 6, is just a summary of what is going to happen, preview of coming attractions. And we see basically the pathology of how a nation goes from uh, being spiritually focused and spiritually victorious to being worse than their enemies, worse than pagans, and how they can completely reverse all of their understanding of life. And we see lots of examples of that today. So last time we looked at uh, Joshua's challenge in Joshua 24, uh, 15, who will you serve? And that is our question. And as we came to the end of Joshua 24, I pointed out the connections to Judges 2.6 because Judges 2.6 always confuses some people because it starts off in Judges 1.1 saying that after Joshua died and then Joshua's alive again in Judges 2.1-6 and it seems to die again and then he dismisses all the people. And what that is is a flashback that goes back to Joshua chapter 24. So we went through Joshua 24 last time, and I talked about this whole concept of what it means to serve the Lord, and I want to expand on a little bit of that uh, as I, that I talked about this last time, that Paul in the New Testament restates this concept of being a servant of the Lord by talking about being a slave of Jesus Christ using the Greek word doulos, which is uh, the Greek counterpart to the word used to translate servant in the Old Testament. And so I put the entry up here from the 
Uh, Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, Danker, uh, or Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, that's the latest one. Um, uh, lex- Greek-English lexicon that doulos means slave. Notice he doesn't say servant. He doesn't water it down. He says it's, it's a, it means a slave. And a slave means that you are completely subservient to the one who owns you. And that reminds us that Scripture says that we have been bought with a price, therefore we are not our own. And that is our position, but rarely is it the experience of, of many Christians. And then we went to Romans 6, because Romans 6, especially 6, 7, and 8, is Paul, one of Paul's finest chapters dealing with the spiritual life. And what we see is in Romans 6, we see the positional reality of who we are in Christ. Romans 7 shows the problems that we can't deal with the sin nature on our own, and the Holy Spirit is not mentioned until you get to Romans 8. And then we discover that it is the Holy Spirit who is the key to the spiritual life. And it was interesting because I thought it was kind of a trick question and probably some people didn't know how to answer or they thought one thing about it or another. But the first night at the Chafer Conference, uh, uh, um, Dennis Roxer had a little quiz, and one of the questions he had in his quiz is, is, what do you think is the key to the spiritual life? Now, I don't know what he was trying to get at, because there's about five things that people go to that they think, this is it. Well, it's all of them, actually, because the Scripture talks about several different things, all of which have to happen, Uh, one of which is confession of sin. And there's a lot of people who get the idea, that's the key to the Christian life. Well, it, 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 it is and it isn't. It depends on how you understand it. Uh, the key, other people who disagree with that position, um, for example, there's a guy named Miles Stanford. Miles had a lot of good things to say, but he disagreed with Chafer on the spiritual life. He was a strong dispensationalist, and I talked to him off and on over the years. I had read some of his books on the spiritual life, and I knew where he was coming from, and I wasn't going to change his mind, so I didn't argue with him. And I think he died about 2002 or three because I was still up in Connecticut. And I think I talked to him about a week before he died. And um, but but his big verse was was uh, in Romans six here. His big verse was um, verse eleven. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, and we need to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. That's the key. Well, it's a key. Doesn't do you any good to reckon yourselves dead to sin if you haven't confessed sin. But if you confess sin and you don't reckon yourselves to be dead to sin afterward when you need to be walking by the Spirit, then that doesn't do you any good. But reckoning yourself to be dead to sin is part of what it means to walk by the Spirit, to abide in Christ, to walk in the light. All of those passages that you hear me recite over and over again give you the different dimensions that have to be part of our understanding of the spiritual life. So it's not just one key. But what we have in Romans 6, and I want you to trace it, and if you 
are prone to underline words or highlight words, um, one of the words that you need to focus on is the word slave. Uh, so in Romans 6, 5, Paul says, For if we have been, and if, and we assume that it's true that we have been, united together in the likeness of his death. That's what happened in the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which is described in the previous two verses, that we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is sometimes referred to as positional truth. We are in Christ, and because uh, Christ's death occurred almost 2,000 years ago, we are identified retroactively to that death, so that has been called retroactive positional truth. What that means is we are in Christ, we've been identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, and one of the results of that that is so important is that it changes our relationship to the sin nature. Now, a lot of people just never quite figure that out because they just are very comfortable with their sin nature, and they don't really want to get where they're too uncomfortable with their sin nature. And Paul wants to make us uncomfortable with our sin nature. And so he says, if, and we have, we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly also we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So the death of Christ has to do with the payment for our sin. Resurrection has to do with the fact that now we are to live in newness of life. In verse 6 he says, because we know this, that our old man, that's not your sin nature. That's everything we were before we were saved. That old man, that person that you and I were before salvation was crucified with Christ. And the purpose for that was that the body of sin, that's our sin nature, might be nullified. See, if the old man is your sin nature, then what's the body of sin? See, a lot of people, older dispensations, would always take the King James and say that old man is your sin nature. But then you have a problem because what's the body of sin? And you have a conflict there. The old man was crucified at the cross that the body of sin might be, and the word there is the same word that talks about how the gift of knowledge and the gift of prophecy in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 9, that they will be abolished. So that's that same word, that the purpose for that positional identification with Christ on the cross is that our sin nature would be, uh, its power would be nullified or abolished for the purpose, I mean, with the result that we should no longer be slaves of sin. This that and that is kind of like what we're seeing in the prayer in Ephesians 3 on Sunday morning. So that the pur first purpose is that the body of sin might be abolished with the result that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So what that tells you, if it's no longer be slaves to sin, what does that say you must have been prior to salvation? You were enslaved to your sin nature. Did you have any other kind of nature? No, you didn't. You only had one nature. That was a sin nature. And we did whatever we did, whether we were moral or immoral, it was all done in the power of the sin nature. 
And so now we've got a new situation so that we would no longer be enslaved to our sin nature. And then Paul says, in, as by way of explanation in verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Galatians 6.1, Christ died to set us free. Okay, he get, gives us that freedom. It's a freedom from the sin nature. When Jesus is is uh, talking to the uh, Pharisees, and he says that it, you know, if you know the truth, you'll be f- free indeed. And they're saying, "Oh yeah, we're free. We're sons of Abraham." Well, they were enslaved to their sin nature. They were enslaved to Rome. They were uh, enslaved to uh, a whole, about three or four different things, and so. Now we are set free from sin. That means none of us have to sin. We feel compelled to because we have a lot of bad, sinful habits that are still part of us from from when we were unbelievers. And then in verse 12, Paul comes to a conclusion. He says, therefore, and this is an application... And he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, that concept of letting sin reign, that is putting the sin nature in a position of authority to rule over you. What's the alternative? The alternative, I mean, the opposite side of that coin. If If sin is going to reign over us, what does that make us? That makes us slaves, makes us like medieval peasants. You know, that's what what we've done. So you still have that imagery of slave or free running through this section, even though in this part it's not talking about, it doesn't use the term slavery. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not, so here's our second negative, do not present. Now this word is at the bottom of the the slide, paristemi, which is uh, given here as a, a command to stop doing this, stop continuing to do this. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Because when you do that, you're going back to that slavery position. But present yourselves to God. So you only have two options. There's no middle road. There's no neutral ground there's no way in which you're just trying to weave your way through uh, and, and thread the needle where you're not one or the other. And it's either you're going to be a, an instrument of unrighteousness to sin or you're going to be presenting yourselves to God um, as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So we all have a choice many, 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 many times every day Am I going to be an instrument of unrighteousness or an instrument of righteousness? And I don't want to hear your stories of how many times you pick wrong. Um, And verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. That's a really strong statement. And having who has dominion over a person? A master to a slave. So it's still that same slavery idea. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but grace. Now, that's really an interesting line there because you see that there are people who think that in the church age, because all of our sins are paid for on the cross, 
that to insist on the imperatives in the New Testament as mandates for how we should live, that that's legalism. But Paul is saying just the opposite. He's saying that that you're, this is it. You don't let sin have dominion over you. In other words, you obey the various commands because you're under grace. Okay, it's not legalism. So in these three verses, we see that sin reigning is the same as sin having dominion, which is the same as being a slave of sin. Now we go to verse 15. What then? So Paul asks another rhetorical question like he did in verse 1. Should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? I mean, I just think this is so clear, and I've heard rumors that there are people in some doctrinal churches that we that I'm I don't know who they are, but I'm supposed to know who they are, or I do know them, but I don't know that they're doing this. They're saying this that well, because we're not under law, it's okay. I don't know where they get that. It's very obvious from here we're not under because we're under grace doesn't mean that when the Scripture says pray without ceasing, be anxious for nothing, uh, give thanks in all things, that you don't, we're not supposed to do those. If we say we're supposed to do that, then we're legalists. Uh, that's really twisted reasoning. Uh, verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? So see, you either present yourself... Um, your members to God, or you present, and here it's talking about whoever you present yourself to obey, God or your sin nature, you make yourself a slave of that person. You either slave to your sin nature or slave to God. But see, the point is, we're slaves. Think about that. We ser- in other words, we serve one or the other. That's it. That's the only option. So we can't really rationalize our way out from under that. We're either serving our sin nature or we're serving God. Don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death. Now, that's not physical death. That's not spiritual death. That's carnal death, operational death. It's when we... We, uh, we're living like an unbeliever, a spiritually dead unbeliever. That's what uh, carnal death or operational death is. We're living like we're spiritually dead. We're not, but we're living that way. We're, so it's either living like a spiritually dead person or obedience leading to righteousness, not justification imputed righteousness, but experiential righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin... You're not anymore. Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. In verse 18, he says, And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And then in verse 19, he says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. That's the sin nature. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for sanctification. That's a better way to interpret that, not holiness, 
but sanctification. So Paul is talking about the importance that we all understand who we're serving. And this is important as backdrop for understanding judges. So back to where we were last week at the end, Joshua 24, 28 and 29 is repeated in Judges 2, 8 and 9 about the death of Joshua, the servant of the Lord, uh, died being 110 years old. It's almost verbatim in Judges 2, 8. And then Judges 2.9 is almost verbatim for Joshua 24.30. The only difference is in Joshua uh, 24.30, it's Timnath Sarah, and it's called Timnath Heretz. Nobody really knows why there's a difference, but sometimes when you have something like that, like Bethlehem Ephrata, then the, the name that comes after is talking about uh, a prominent person who settled that area or, or uh, that that's part of that territory, something of that nature. But I haven't been able to define that, but it's talking about the same thing. So that brings us uh, up to where we're uh, breaking into a lot of new territory now. Judges 10, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers. Now, who's all that generation? That's not just Joshua, because as I showed you last week, Joshua was probably 30 or 40 years older than the other elders of Israel because he lived to be um, 120, right? Was that right? You know, you know how I am in numbers. 110, that's what I thought. 110. So he's he comes out of Egypt, he's 35. And that means he's uh, 75, He's got 75 years after he comes out of Egypt. And of those 75 years, 40 were in the wilderness. And so he's had a good 35 years in, um, in his uh, allotment, in his inheritance. And he's enjoyed every minute of that. But now he's dead. But those other guys are probably a good bit younger than him. And it takes a while, maybe 30, 40, 50 years before they all die off. And when all of that generation is gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Now, it's interesting and it's easy to blame their, the generation of their fathers, of the, the generation of Joshua for not passing things along, but they're not condemned in Scripture. It's interesting how you have the generation that comes out of Egypt and they're just whiny and they complain about everything. They always want to go back to Egypt and they're as rebellious as they can be and God has to put down two or three uh, rebellions against the authority of Moses uh, while they're in the wilderness, uh, not to mention what happens at uh, uh, Kadesh Barnea when they refuse to go into the land and they say, oh, we just can't do it. We're going to lose. There's so many of them. They're giants and they have walled cities. And only Caleb and Joshua had the spiritual courage to trust God. And that Exodus generation had to die off because they had no capacity for freedom. So they're a bunch of whiners and losers and always having a pity party, and they have a generation that comes after them, and it's not because of them, 
that they that they were taught that their their children were taught well, but they learned from the bad example of their parents, and so they stand fast with the Lord and with Joshua and Caleb, and they take the land. And it's not until they're all gone that when their children come to middle age that things begin to really fall apart uh, pretty quickly. And that's the generation that is, that's being talked about, that the generation who did not know the Lord. So I want to talk about that phrase a little bit because it's used differently in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. In the New Testament, if you go to John chapter 14, there's an interchange there as Jesus is talking about the fact that he's going to go to his father and he's going to where they're uh, where he's going to be preparing a place for us, and then he'll come back for us. And then you have Peter saying, well, where are you going, Lord? We don't know how to get there. And so that's when Jesus said, well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And then Philip says, well, show us the Father. And then Jesus said, how long have you been with me, Philip, and you don't, what? You don't know me. Well, wait a minute. Philip's clearly a believer, and you can base that on several things, because those who were, except for Judas, everybody else that's in the upper room is said to have been cleansed. That means they're all saved. And now here's, here's uh, Philip, and he, Jesus says, you don't know me. So knowing Jesus doesn't mean the same thing. Knowing Jesus is a post-salvation a spiritual growth issue in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, though, it seems to be synonymous with trusting in God and being saved. For example, you have passages like Jeremiah 10.25, talking to God, pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you. I think contextually it's pretty clear they're not believers. So that's one passage. Another passage is Jeremiah 4.22, where God says, For my people are foolish, they have not known me. And that indicates contextually that they're not believers. So when we look at the passage in Judges 2.10, and he's talking about those that they did not know the Lord, he's saying that the majority of this next generation were not believers. And then he's going to explain what happened to them. And that's verse 11. And so when we look at, at Judges, uh, Judges chapter 2 here, and we look at the verses from, um, let me get over there, J- to Judge, Judges 2, uh, 11, down to um, verse, verse uh, 16, we get a summary of the coming generations because this summarizes what's going to happen in the rest of the book of Judges, that there are going to be these cycles. So first of all, he's, the, the text says, then the sons of Israel did evil. Now, how do you define evil? That's a good question. Evil is clearly defined in the Old Testament, most of the time, 
the vast majority of the time, when it says that so-and-so did evil, what comes next is they're worshiping false gods. They are ignoring the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they are following some other God. David did a lot of sinful things. He conspired to have Uriah murdered. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He, he did a number of other things, but he, it's never said that he did evil. He was not an idolater. His, his heart was for the Lord, and we all have sin, and we all sin, but uh, David was not one uh, that ever turned his back on the Lord. He knew what was true and what wasn't. So the sons of Israel did evil. This is the Hebrew word ra'ah, which can be translated bad or evil, but it has to do with mostly with idolatry, and that's the context here. It describes those who abandon God, who turn their back on God, and they are worshiping some alternative. It may be they are just worshiping their own sin nature and doing whatever they want to do. They're just completely self-absorbed and self-indulgent. It could be that they have attributed to some idol made out of stone or wood or metal, and they've attributed that as some powerful representation of some uh, spiritual deity. And we know from... Deuteronomy, that God says that they're worshiping and sacrificing to demons, that there are demons um, behind those idols. And we'll see more about that uh, as uh, as we go forward this evening. So they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. So this word for Baals is a, um, a Hebrew word that simply means Lord. That's its root meaning. And there's a couple of times when God is referred to as a Baal because he's the Lord, and it's a synonym for that. But then it comes to be a proper name for uh, one of the deities in the Canaanite pantheon. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go forward. Right now, I want to look at the progression of these these verbs. So first, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. That means they are enslaving themselves to the Baals. They are, it's, it's the same word, avad, that has to do with being a slave or a servant. It's, it's the verb form. And so th- that's why I went to Romans 6 to begin with. We only have two options. We're either serving God or we're serving idols, one or the other. It's either the path of righteousness or the path of unrighteousness. There's no neutral ground in the middle. And so we see a progression here that they did not know. They did evil. They First of all, they're ignorant of history. They're ignorant of the history of God's work among them. And this is a problem we have today that the generations after us have been brainwashed with a secular myth about the founding of America. 
they have been told that uh, the founding of America and the foundational doc- documents have nothing whatsoever to do with Christianity. They have been told that the thinking of all of the founding fathers, or most of them, the influential ones, they'll say, are the uh, are, are shaped by the Enlightenment ideas, and most of them just. Uh, it was sort of a pro forma thing if they did anything related to church or reading their Bible or talking about God. They were just going through the motions because that's how most of the people act. Now, that's just liberals projecting on the founding fathers because that's what they do. They just go through the motions and they'll say things and they'll, talk, they'll uh, swear oaths uh, in God's name and on the Bible that they're going to protect the Constitution, and then as soon as it's over with, they've forgotten they ever said that. And so this is a major problem that that we have today, but that wasn't a problem. The men who founded this nation and the women who founded this nation and were backing them had integrity, real integrity. They They had virtue. This is built into their psyche from birth. And uh, when you go through this, matter of fact, what will be interest, more interesting probably for most people is next fall when I am teaching uh, the second half of church history. We'll be starting in the early 1600s with the pilgrims and the Puritans coming to America. We'll be dealing with a lot of those uh, founding issues in America and on the way, all the way through up through the 19th and 20th century. So it's much more uh, contemporary and relevant. But if you raise a generation that doesn't know history, that doesn't know the importance that God played in the background to the founding of the United States and how the Word of God shaped the thinking of the founding fathers, and that it, it doesn't matter whether they were Baptist or Presbyterian or Anglican slash Episcopal, uh, they understood the principles of the Word of God because they grew up in a world that was shaped by a theistic, a Judeo-Christian worldview. And so at that time, uh, it didn't matter what you may have come to believe in life, uh, there's evidence that a couple may have at one time or another in their lives toyed with deism, but not in a, not in a significant way. Uh, because if you believe in deism, you don't pray, and uh, the two that are mostly mentioned are, uh, I'm going to ignore Thomas Paine, but Franklin and Jefferson, and they both wrote in their diaries about prayer and many other different things, and so it's important to understand that. They, they weren't always, they weren't what I'd call an orthodox Christian, but growing up in a Judeo-Christian worldview, they believed in biblical absolutes for the most part. And yet, uh, and the flip side is what we see today. Uh, all of us have grown up in a, a relativistic culture filled with uh, moral relativism and all kinds of rationalizations for uh, sins and sinful activities and not going to church and not being serious about God. And so a lot of Christians just think that way because they still think like the world. They're, they're not obeying Romans 12 too. They're, they're conformed to the world and they're not being transformed by the word of God. Uh, but that wasn't the way it was with the, with the founding fathers. But since the 60s and earlier, 
the reality of Christianity on the founding generation has has been taken out of the classroom, and uh, probably for most of our lifetimes, there's been more ridicule about uh, some of the Christians and the the reality of Christianity in the founding generation than not pointing out all their sins, all their failures, all their flaws. And we have to re- realize that we're all flawed, we're all failed, and you, you can point to any one of us and find all kinds of sins that we're not proud of and we really don't want anybody to know about, and God does, and he paid the price for them, and we're forgiven. And that's what's important is moving forward in the Christian life. But that's the way they were. So they, the, the, is, is, the next generation in Israel didn't know what God had done. They had not seen it. They heard some of the stories, but they didn't really uh, hold to it. And I think to some degree about that spoiled brat that we learn about at the end of the period of the judges by the name of Samson. And his birth is announced by the angel of the Lord to his parents. And the angel of the Lord says that he is to, from birth, uh, be held to the uh, principles, the regulations for a, Nazar- uh, a Nazarite. It's the Nazarite vow, and it means that they're separated to God, and they weren't supposed to cut their hair. They weren't. They they not only weren't supposed to drink any wine. They weren't even supposed to touch a grapevine, and they certainly weren't supposed to uh, touch a dead body. And you have this episode where. Uh, his parents are taking him somewhere, and he's out running around and uh, just just act, doing whatever he wants to do, and he's never seen as obedient or respectful of his parents. And while he's running around in the, in the uh, area around them and they're not watching, he kills a lion. And then later he's going to go back and he's going to discover a beehive in the carcass, which is really weird because carcasses are usually wet and moist and a beehive needs to be in a dry place. So there's something interesting going on there, which we'll look at when we get there. But he he never has any respect for his Nazarite vow. And and so he just, uh, but he doesn't, the text makes the point he doesn't tell his parents he did it. Well, why didn't he tell his parents? Same reason you didn't tell your parents about some things you did, and I didn't tell my parents about some things I did because we knew that they would disapprove. And he's thinking, you know, they take all this Nazarite vow stuff seriously and this God stuff seriously, and I'm just not buying into any of that, and so I'm just going to do what I want to do and uh, and go on about it. I'm just not going to cause cause trouble by telling them what I've done. And see, that's, that's what happens with this upcoming generation is that they have no respect for what God did and how they are told, if they were told about it, by, the, by their parents' generation. So first, they're historically ignorant of the works of God in the history of Israel, bringing them out of Egypt and all the miracles in the wilderness and the miracles of the conquest. And then they did evil. That means they are into idolatry and they enslaved uh, themselves to the Baals. And what we have in the next verse expands on that 
and says, And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods. So they forsake God, and then they follow other gods, which reiterates what's happened. Now, that word forsook is probably a word you haven't used too much lately. And it's a little antiquated, but the Hebrew is very clear. It's, it's the word on, in the green box on the far right. It, it is azav, and it means to abandon, to turn their back on, to completely leave him. So they're turning their, it's a very visual word. They're turning their back on Yahweh, the God of their fathers, and who is defined as the one who uh, rescued them from Egypt, and they are instead following other gods from among the gods of the peoples. Now you have two phrases that are used uh, off and on in the Old Testament, the gods of the peoples and the gods of the Gentiles. And so this is referring to all of these various uh, pantheons, gods and goddesses that these various nations worship. And a lot of, most of the gods, I've got a chart on this we'll get to, uh, the gods in uh, the Canaanite gods, the Syrian gods, the Phoenician gods, the Philistine gods, the Babylonian gods and goddesses, and the Egyptian gods and goddesses just had different names. But basically, each of these uh, persons were used uh, somewhat interchangeably. And so we see this progression going on here that they did not know they did evil, they served or enslaved themselves to the Baals, they abandoned uh, the Lord, and they uh, enslaved themselves. They are bowing themselves down to these other idols. So in conclusion, we're told, so they abandoned the Lord and served or enslaved themselves to the Baal and the Ashtaroth. Now, the interesting thing about this is how this is structured because the writer writes it in a way to get our attention. They didn't have bold-faced type and italics and all these other things that we can use to bring attention to something, so they do it in the way they write it and structure it uh, literarily. And so uh, this is in the form of a chiasm. We've talked about chiasms before. It's a literary device that organizes a series of events in such a way that the second half of the series is a mirror reflection of the first half. The purpose is to emphasize the center events as, uh, and the other events highlight or frame it like the frame on a picture. So you will have the, a, a line that's line A, line B expresses another thought, line C, a third thought, and then the next line reiterates the C, so it's a reflection of it, that C prime, and then the B prime is synonymous with the first B line, and the A prime is um, parallel to the original or the initial A statement. And so when you look at it, it's driving your focal point to the center. And that's what's important. So when we look at this as a chiasm, he says they served the Baals in 11b. Then they abandoned Yahweh in 12a. Then they pursued other gods in 12b. 
And in the next line, they worshiped him. That's parallel to they pursued other gods. Pursuing other gods and worshiping them are parallel. And then B prime is they repeats the first B statement. They abandoned Yahweh. And then A prime, they served the Baals and the Astartes. So the center of this is that they're pursuing They've engaged their negative volition toward God and positive toward idolatry, and they're chasing after these false gods and goddesses. And that is a very dramatic picture of what they are doing. Now, we ought to ask the question, why in the world did they get into idolatry? What is so attractive about idolatry? And the first thing about it is that these pagan religions had no prohibitions whatsoever. Now that that makes it a lot more fun than worshiping Yahweh. You read through the law and you're told all these things you have to do and all these things you can't do, and the things you can't do seem just like a lot of fun, and those pagans seem to do it all the time. So the law says you shall not commit adultery. Uh, You can't have Uh, any relations with beasts, no bestiality, no fornication, no homosexuality, no lewdness, no child sacrifice, no prohibitions whatsoever. Now, each one of those things is at the very center of the Canaanite worship, of the fertility worship that dominated the ancient Near East. So that's very attractive because not only... Uh, can you do whatever your sin nature wants you to do, and it's and it's justified as as religion, but it seems uh, to be working for these people. Uh, it seems to be working for them, and that's the second point. The Canaanite religions were centered around prosperity now, not that God's going to bless you in the future, but it's prosperity now. In other words, you're going to get rich, and they're looking around at these. Canaanite towns and the farms, and they see all of the uh, lush vegetation and the productivity and uh, the families and everything, and they say, well, it doesn't seem like there's any problem, and look at what they're doing. Because when they would go to the Canaanite temple to worship, uh, they're not going there to sacrifice an animal. They're going there to have relations with one of the temple prostitutes, male or female. Uh, men and women were were going uh, were, were going there, and so this is just a a, a, a huge problem, and it reminds me uh, to some degree of what happens in Second Samuel chapter two, in the last part of the chapter, where we see the emphasis on uh, Samuel's sons. And that they are these reprobate sons. They're they're just a great picture. I'm not Samuel's sons, Eli's sons. They're a great picture of the of this period of the judges because that's still those first seven chapters in Judges are still part of. I mean, it's sec, those first seven chapters in Samuel are still part of the period of the judges, and these sons who are functioning as priests are copulating with women at the gates to the temple. But everybody thought that was normative because that's what the Canaanites were doing. Everybody else was doing it. That's how they worshiped the gods and goddesses other than Israel. 
Israel said, you can't, God said, you can't do that. You're not going to mix sex with religion. Whereas in all of these ancient religions, they were mixing sex with religion, and that was, uh, made it all uh, very, very attractive. And so they take the bait. And remember back in Judges chapter 2, uh, verse 3, uh, the angel of the Lord announced this judgment on them and said, uh, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your side, sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. And that's the Hebrew word uh, mokesh, which means a trap. They will uh, seek to entrap you. They will bait the trap, and it will be extremely attractive And like a mouse going for the cheese, you're going to be going for it all the time. That's exactly what they did. And they never stopped to think about it. So this is what's involved in them going after the Baals and serving and enslaving themselves to the Baals and the Ashtaroths. So what's all this about? These are some of the various various names I've got some columns here. We'll flesh this out some as we go through uh, through Judges. You have the Canaanite god, Baal. His Syrian counterpart is Hadad. Baal is the storm god. He's the god who brings rain. Remember the episode in, in um, uh, 1 Kings 17 with Elijah that God, he goes to Ahab and says, it's not going to rain until I say so. That was part of the... Uh, third uh, cycle of discipline, that it wouldn't rain and the sky would be like bronze. And so then Elijah hightails it out of there and disappears. And there's no rain for a long, long time. And uh, Ahab and his wife Jezebel, Jezebel brought in the Baal, the priests of Baal, and the uh, Asherim brought them into uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and so they're, they're trying to get Baal to bring rain. And when they go up in the uh, next chapter and they're up on Mount Carmel and uh, Elijah's just making fun of them. See, God makes fun of fake religions. He's not politically correct. They may be sincere, but God just laughs at them and chuckles at them. And Elijah just made fun of him. Said, "Dance some more. He's taking a nap. Uh, he's he he just can't hear you. You get louder." And nothing ever happened. And then Elijah went out there and built the altar and soaked it with water, and said, "Just called on the name of the Lord to light that fire." And he did instantly. And so that demonstrated Yahweh was God and Baal was nothing. And this, this is what's happened. That's Baal. But his Syrian counterpart, you run into Ben-Hadad in Kings, and Hadad is the Syrian name for the storm god. So that's the same as Baal. In the Philistines, some think, it, think that Dagon is the counterpart. There's a lot of debate over that. I uh, think that Dagon is the counterpart. And in Moab, it's Chemosh is the god who is the storm god. And his consort, that is his wife, is uh, uh, Ashtoreth, and she is the god of love and war. Uh, She's also the perpetual virgin. Does that sound like some 
Christian aberration somewhere along the line, um, the perpetual virginity of um, of the of Ash of Asherah, and then uh, so she's. A, a perpetual virgin who's always conceiving, which is irrational, but paganism is irrational, okay? And and, and that comes out. Uh, Baal is the uh, mighty god, and she is his consort. And you have the story of Baal, who's number two. You don't really have a creation myth in a Canaanites, a Canaanite story, uh, El is the head of the pantheon, but he's old, and he just um, uh, just really isn't very strong anymore and very active, and he's not uh, virile. So El is going to show, I mean, uh, Baal is going to show, show how powerful he is and how strong and virile he is. So he goes out and he copulates with a heifer, and that's why he's often pictured as a bull. And uh, he's just showing that he's a, a powerful one. Now, what's interesting is all these other lesser gods are called the sons of God. And that, biblically, the term sons of God refers to the fallen angels and those who sinned in Genesis uh, chapter 6. And so that shows this kind of connection between these false gods and the angels. Remember in Deuteronomy, it says those who worship these false gods were really worshiping demons. Now, some of you may have read Paradise Lost when you were uh, in junior high or high school. It's really quite long. All we really had to read, if I remember correctly, was some excerpts from the first book. But in the first book, uh, Milton describes this this very thing. He was a Puritan. He was extremely uh, well-informed biblically. He could read the Hebrew Bible by the time he was 10 years old. He was absolutely brilliant, and he understood his theology very well. And so uh, I'm just going to read a little section from Paradise Lost for you and just see, see if you recognize any names. He's talking about all of these sons of God. He said, First, Moloch, horrid king besmeared with blood of human sacrifice and parents' tears. Though for the noise of drums and timbrels loud, their children cries unheard that passed through fire to his grim idol. Him, the Ammonite worshipped in Rabbah and her watery plain, in Argob and in Bashan to the stream of utmost Arnon. Nor content with such audacious neighborhood, the wisest heart of Solomon, he led by fraud to build his temple right against the temple of God on that opprobrious hill and made his grove the pleasant valley of Hinnom, Tophet thence and black Gehenna called the type of hell. Next, Chemosh, the obscene dread of Moab's sons, from Aurora to Nebo, and the wild of southmost Abarim, in Heshbon and Horonaim, Sheon's realm, beyond the flowery dale of Sibma, clad with vines, and Eliel to the asphaltic pool, Peor, his other name, remember Baal Peor? His other name when he enticed Israel in Shittim, 
on their march from the Nile, to do him wanton rites which cost him woe. Yet thence his lustful orgies he enlarged, even to the hill of scandal by the grove of Moloch, homicide just hard by hate, till good Josiah drove them thence to hell. So he mentions Astarte as the queen of heaven uh, with crescent horns. He mentions Tammuz and Adonis and Dagon and Osiris and Isis and Belial, and on he goes. All of these are the gods and goddesses of the ancient Near East. But he uses them as the names of the fallen angels. See, he's got it right. They are the, these gods and goddesses that were worshipped were the ultimately uh, the fallen uh, the fallen angels. So this is Baal, and what would happen is they went into the land. They would go in, and this is the way the pagan mind worked. They would see, you've been to Israel, there's, it's pretty dry and dusty at places, and they would see a grove of trees. Now, in Texas, if you see some sycamore trees, you know that there's some water there because they need to be right by the water. Or if you see cypress trees, they need to be right by the water. So if you see some sycamore trees, you can go and dig for water. And I remember... Uh, one time when I was about 14 or 15 on a canoe trip on the upper Colorado River, uh, one of the one of my uh, great mentors growing up was a guy named Mike Turnage. And Mike was always into this stuff. And we were on a hike, and he, he saw a sycamore tree. It didn't look like there was any water around. And so he, he grabbed the, our, the little shovel we had with us and dug. And before long, we had some water bubbling up, and there, there was a spring there. And uh, so that what would happen in the ancient world is they would see these trees and say, well, there's water there, so there's fertility, and there must be a, a Baal there. And so they would go and they would build a little temple and an altar, and there they would worship, and then before long they would gather uh, some prostitutes to the temple, male and female, and they would be... Uh, off uh, establishing that religion. So that was, the, and everywhere you went in Israel, so you have these gods mentioned, you have the god Baal Peor, and you have Baal Berit, and several other uh, Baals around the country, and so they were scattered everywhere. So it was an, uh, a temptation uh, to Israel all, all the way around. And so this is the test that they are facing. And in Judges 2.14, we read the result. The anger of Yahweh was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. This is just vivid language for the fact that he uh, gave them to, um, to their enemies. Over in the Middle East, you have a lot of palavering that goes along and bar bartering, and you, you see some of this in the Bible. For example, when Sarah dies and uh, Abraham needs to buy uh, a plot of land, get the cave of Machpelah so that he can uh, bury Sarah, he's going to barter with the Hittites there that are his friends, and they say, oh, you don't have to give us anything. We'll just give it to you. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to take a gift. I'm, I'm going to give you some money for it. And, of course, all along they know there's going to be some money exchanged, but that's kind of how the Middle East works. 
And so that's this idea of God uh, selling them is the idea of God giving them over to the hands of their enemies all around. So we see the this phrase, uh, the anger of the Lord. And so I think I'm going to stop here tonight and we'll get started again with this and dealing with this phrase, uh, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Now, I'll, I'll just leave you with this because I thought it was kind of amusing. Um, some of you know this. I've been taken just for a refresher course on on Hebrew from a, a online course out of, out of uh, Israel, and um, so we just went through J- Jonah. And several times in Jonah, it's, it says God talks about God's anger burned against uh, the, uh, uh, Jonah, and uh, Jonah got mad at the Ninevites and this kind of a thing. And you always have this same idiom. And literally, it, it, there's not a literal word for anger. It's the word to burn. And usually the phrase is afhara, the nose burned. Because when somebody gets really angry, their face turns red and their nose turns red. And so that's what they're saying. So they're, that is just a very idiomatic statement uh, for someone who's who's angry, but what I, I found this out, I had never never noticed this or heard this before. But there's a phrase that expresses the opposite, and that is the idea of patience. And the word that is translated for long suffering or patience is the word noses. You have a long nose. See, because you don't get angry quickly. It's long. So that's the idiom. So you have to figure these things out. So it's a lot of fun to play with those things and learn about those things in the language. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded that we are to serve you, that this is not an option, that we have been bought with a price. We are not our own. We are yours, and we are to serve you with our lives and that we are to not give ourselves to unrighteousness, but to righteousness. Father, we pray that as we see these things happening in the ancient world, and they've been repeated so many times in so many different civilizations throughout history, that now we see a lot of this same kind of thing going on here. And Father, we pray that there would be uh, men and women who will honestly, carefully, accurately proclaim the gospel and that there would be responsive ears because if things, as things are deteriorating in all of this pandemic and all of the difficulties that people are facing, the one sure hope, the one certainty, the only source of stability is you. And so, Father, we pray that you would raise up men and women who would uh, talk, converse, teach the truth of your word because it is sorely lacking today. In Christ's name, amen.